afternoon and welcome to the 40th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have Jeanette Sutton and Joan Donovan and our topic is the pandemic, risk communication and misinformation. We are streaming on YouTube Live. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter. My Twitter handle is at US of Disaster. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and connect to the COVID calls podcast. Please do help me spread the word and send suggestions for guests and topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. On Monday, I have a very special COVID calls in partnership with the York County Economic Alliance and the York Historical Society. This is a close-up look at the challenges of COVID-19 in York, Pennsylvania. This will be the first of many such close-up discussions with communities across America. There'll be a special YouTube live link for this call and I'll make it available by Twitter or you can email me directly to receive the information for Monday's call if you want to listen live. My email sgk23 at drexel.edu or you can find me easily on the Drexel University website. As of today, there are 3,910,738 confirmed cases globally of COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 3,815,561 cases yesterday. 1,273,887 of those are in the United States, up from 1,245,622 yesterday. There are now a total of 76,475 reported deaths from COVID-19 in the United States, up from 75,054 yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to these numbers, I've been reading the life story every day this week, and I'd like to continue that now. This is from the Chicago Tribune, May 6th, byline by Christy Gutowski. This is the obituary of Christ Guzman. Five months ago, Christ Angeline Guzman gave birth to her third child. She named boy Leandro after her maternal grandfather and an uncle, a renowned pediatric surgeon in the Philippines whom she idolized. He had fueled her passion for medicine at a young age and inspired Guzman to fulfill it by becoming a nurse. In a cruel coincidence, one month and thousands of miles apart, Guzman and her uncle both died after contracting COVID-19 while working on the pandemic medical front lines. Guzman, 35, died May 2nd after a short battle with the disease. She is one of at least 25 medical professionals across Illinois who have died of complications related to the virus. Nearly 5,000 have tested positive, said state public health officials, who acknowledge the exact figure is unknown and likely higher. Both Guzman and her husband, Omar, worked at Meadowbrook Manor Bolingbrook, which with 10 deaths and 93 confirmed coronavirus cases among residents and employees, is one of the hardest hit nursing homes in the state, public health data showed. Omar Guzman tested positive for the virus as well, but so far has not experienced symptoms and is not hospitalized, according to the family. Aside from Leandro, their infant son, the Bolingbrook couple also has a six-year-old daughter and another boy who is five. Guzman was born in the Philippines, and her name, Chris Angelin, is a nod to her birthday a few days after Christmas and a combination of the first names of her parents, Angel and Lily Castro. When Guzman fell ill, she was excitedly planning a trip to Disney World for her children. 
Her family said she was a devoted mother who read to her children at night and tried to instill good values in them. Guzman's family said she enjoyed working with the elderly at the Bolingbrook nursing home, but grew nervous as the virus spread, especially after her uncle, Dr. Leandro Resurrección III, 57, died on March 31st in the Philippines. The pediatric surgeon was considered a pioneer in his field, especially in liver transplants, and was affiliated with various hospitals. Guzman posted about her loss days later on social media, recounting how, when she was a child, her uncle would tell her about his patients and show her his medical instruments and photographs in his medical books. My earliest memory of him was waiting for him at the front window as he walked up the driveway in his scrubs coming home from work, she wrote April 2nd on Facebook. He has always been my idol and I wanted to be just like him. Three days later, Guzman posted photos of herself at work wearing a mask and goggles for protection from COVID-19. These are the days of our lives, she wrote, a message that included hashtags proclaiming she was a proud nurse and praying for my patients. Within days of her last post, Guzman developed mild virus-related symptoms. Her last day at work was April 23rd. She was again tested for coronavirus on April 25th and checked into a hotel alone so as not to possibly expose her family. Her results came two days later and this time showed she was positive. Guzman died that next evening after going into cardiac arrest while intubated at Amida Health Adventist Medical Center, Bolingbrook, a hospital across the street from the nursing facility where she and her husband worked. Omar Guzman had the heartbreaking duty of telling their oldest children what had happened. He said he told them the truth that mommy's not coming back. This disease is so vicious and unpredictable, we have to do whatever we can to eradicate it, her cousin Jeshalyn Pilar said. If it means to stay home, then just do it. Please, that's what she would say if she were here, just stay home. turn now to introduce my guests for our discussion today, and I'd start with uh, Dr. Joan Donovan. Dr. Donovan is the research director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Dr. Donovan leads the Technology and Social Change product, Project, and it explores how media manipulation is a means to control public conversation, derail democracy, and disrupt society. TASC, the acronym for this research group, conducts research, develops methods, and facilitates workshops for journalists, policymakers, technologists, and civil society organizations on how to detect, document, and debunk media manipulation campaigns. Her contributions can be found in many articles, research reports, and also in the books Data Science Landscape Towards Research Standards and Protocols and Unlike Us Reader social media monopolies and their alternatives. Dr. Donovan's research and expertise has been showcased in a wide array of media outlets, including NPR, The Washington Post, The New York Times, Rolling Stone, The Atlantic, and more. My second guest today, Jeanette Sutton, is Associate Professor in the Department of Communication and the Director of the Risk and Disaster Communication Center of the University of Kentucky. Dr. Sutton specializes in disaster and risk with a primary focus on online informal communications, and public alerts and warnings disseminated via terse messaging channels. Much of her research investigates the evolving role of information and communication technology, including social media and mobile devices for disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. Dr. Sutton has held numerous grants from the National Science Foundation, as well as the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Office of Naval Research. She has 
the vast number of papers under publication and her research has been published in the Journal of Homeland Security and Emergency Management and the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences among many, many other venues. Jeanette and Joan, thank you so much for joining me on COVID calls today. Thanks, appreciate being here. So I'd like to rem remind folks that you can get your questions in on YouTube Live and just put those in the chat and those will get to me or you can email me directly, sgk23 at drexel.edu or you can put your questions up on Twitter and just be sure to tag me at US of Disaster. So Joan and Jeanette, I've been um, starting these conversations by asking people how things are going where they are asking them where they are and telling us how things are going where they are. So Joan, may I, maybe I'll start with you. Um, where are you and how are things there? Well, I am in uh, Northeast Massachusetts and it's been, it's been really strange. We've been expecting snow some days, then, it, then it'll be 60 degrees out. And I feel like you, the time in spring where you would use to kind of organize your life and your household and do your cleaning and everything is really shifted now that we're always at home and we're kind of always tending to our, our spaces and, and things. And so I've done as much reorganizing as I can. Everything has a place now. Uh, but I just, I feel incredibly lonely, you know, in, in times like this, you know, um, my spouse is a great support and I'm very thankful for her, but I'm, I'm a very social person. I run a pretty great team of researchers and so I miss seeing them every day. And so yeah, getting used to this, not knowing when it will end is definitely, uh, you know, at first it was like having perpetual snow days, but now it's like having perpetual sick days, you know? And so it's not a, it's not a great, feeling anymore. The novelness of it, I think, has worn off. But in the research world, things have never been busier. Every, um, every day we wake up to new kinds of chaos, new uh, problems with scientific communication, new disinformation, actors and campaigns. And then there's just normal fraud and malware and phishing and all that other kind of stuff that comes along with just being online, which is really amped up. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's been a very strange and uh, meandering journey through the pandemic. But um, if not for the, the extreme like support and dedication of my team, I think I, I would have driven myself crazy by now. From perpetual snow days to perpetual Sick days is one of the most yeah. apt descriptions of this I have heard yet. Jeanette, let me turn to you. How are things where you are and where are you? Well, I'm in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, the bluegrass state. Um, and um, I've been home. I think this is probably around day 50 or so. I don't even know. I've lost track of days, honestly. I, I think we're going into a weekend. Um, I think most people have kind of lost the ability to figure out the day that they're in, and I'm one of those people. Um, I think that, uh, you know, looking around at, at my, my state, um, we've been very fortunate to have had um, leadership that's been very clear and direct um, on a consistent basis. In fact, Andy Bashir is holding his daily call exactly the same time as this COVID call is being held. And, and um, it's been fascinating to watch 
um, people get online on FaceTime and um, participate in those calls live and um, really rallying around the protective actions that he's um, been enforcing and um, the f very few times I think I've been out twice in the last 50 days <laughs> beyond the walks in my neighborhood um, I, I see that people are are embracing the the recommendations that are out there but we're also everyone's very eager to to get out and enjoy some of that springtime weather that we would normally be experiencing Jeanette let me stay with you and I want to ask you first about your um, your pre-COVID-19 work I mean I'm going back through some of your papers today and you were such an innovator in in looking at um, Twitter and and disaster messaging and the kinds of decisions that people make about how to repeat or not to repeat warning messages. Could you just take us a little bit, I know it's a lot to ask in such a short time, but take us into some of the core questions that you've been wrestling over the last few years before you found yourself in this pandemic. Sure, thanks. Um, I love talking about my research, so I'm happy to do so. Um, I started doing research on social media in around 2008. Um, right as it was starting to really emerge as um, a key channel for for the public and then um, public officials started adopting it um, shortly thereafter and so um, I was working with colleagues at the University of Colorado Boulder where I got my PhD and um, started observing how the public were utilizing these new channels um, to form situational awareness, to collaborate broadly. Um, and the, in the early days of social media, um, I think we had a, um, a different perspective of the way that it is now. Um, it, the, it was not very expansive. People were just on the edge of adopting it. People tended to be really helpful and collaborative. Mm -hmm. We didn't see a lot of rumoring. <laughs> Um, and there was some resistance from public officials about how to use it and using it effectively. And that was what really launched me and my colleague, um, Carter Butts at UC Irvine, um, the two of us to start looking at how this channel, Twitter in particular, is utilized by public officials so that they can become um, better at using social media. Because uh, public officials, one of the best ways that they have to reach the public directly is through social media. Most of the time they would have an intermediary, the media, or they would um, do daily briefings twice a day and they're reliant on other technologies to get that information out. And so with social media, they had this new opportunity to uh, connect directly with audiences, either those who were following them or um, using hashtags and such to get information out into the broader um, environment. Mm -hmm. And so we started looking at individual cases and we compiled, I think we've, we've done nine different case studies now where you compile all of the data together, looking at all of these different official organizations and how they're communicating. We've been able to identify the, the characteristics of messages that attract attention in the online environment and the things that people seem to pay the most attention to that they pass along. Mm. So there's some things that we say to emergency managers, to the National Weather Service, to the CDC, to other risk communicators, that if they shape their messages in a particular way, they're more likely to get those things passed to a broader audience. And retransmission or amplification of these messages online is, um, it's 
vital in order to get behavioral change, which is the end goal of this persuasive messaging and warnings. And so um, helping those agencies to, to um, design their messages in such a way that they can reach more people has been vital. That doesn't take into account the algorithms that are um, that decide what things are going to be prioritized in people's social media feeds, which is a huge problem, especially right now, um, because those messages um, they it requires a constant, continuous communication to be part of the conversation, mm -hmm. and officials don't tend to tweet as much as other very prolific tweeters, which I'm, I suspect that we'll hear about in a bit from, from Joan about how they can flood the internet with messages, which really um, tamps down on that official communication, which is so vital right now. But um, that's, that's kind of the tra trajectory that we took um, for the last 10 years. And now we've moved into the space of looking at um, how those public officials are communicating about COVID. Joan, let me turn to you. Same question uh, before the pandemic. What was the trajectory of your research, the main questions that were that you were working on there at the Shorenstein Center? Uh, so we were, so we've been, we were, we've been, um, we study media manipulation, disinformation. We, what we try to understand is how media manipulators use any available technological means as well as social means, political means to open up conversations on their issues and to kind of push narratives into mainstream audiences. Uh, to that end, we study trolls, political operatives, marketers, white, white supremacists, uh, anti-Semites, people who are usually hiding who they are or hiding the purpose of their communication or hiding their true intent. And we study the ways in which they engineer communication through different internet uh, platforms so that it gets in front of journalists, like the days of trying to just message a journalist and get them to retweet you are kind of over. Um, but I think this has actually been a, a bit of a different and return of that tactic now where you have public health responders, people who are doctors, nurses, using their social media to update what's happening. And they are unaware that they too are gonna to be manipulated by folks that are trying to get them to share these, these uh, fringe narratives. And so before we were doing that, we were still looking at health misinformation, we're looking at political manipulation, uh, looking at cultural wedge issues that we typically see media manipulators uh, using to piggyback their uh, politics into the mainstream, including things like uh, immigration issues, gun rights, LGBTQ, uh, looking at issues of gender trolling and, and race and, and uh, uh, racialized disinformation. So we had devised a research program that we were gonna do about 100 case studies and try to map all these different tactics, these different pipelines, try to see who the different um, buckets of bad actors are and what uh, kinds of mechanisms could be put in place either technologically or with training of, of uh, professional communicators like journalists or public uh, health officials or politicians uh, even technologists to get them to understand that 
being verified on Twitter, being a public personality is more than just uh, your own personal ideas at this stage, that, uh, that we are in a media ecosystem that tends to favor outrage, fear, panic, and in doing so, um, the internet becomes this space where uh, people are, you know, not necessarily susceptible to fringe narratives, but they keep getting put in front of them. And eventually they become comfortable with them. Uh, and when we study white supremacists in particular, they spend a lot of time using irony and joking to try to get people comfortable and attenuated to their ideas. And then as they do that, then they start to scale up um, or ratchet up the seriousness of the, the politics of what you're discussing. So it could be starting with some kind of misogyny and saying, you know, man, you know, women are in control of who dates and, you know, us men, we don't have a lot, you know, we can do to get women to, to date us. Uh, women are in control. And then that can scale into, uh, you know, what we need to do is, you know, there's this feminist that's saying this stuff online and we need to go troll her. We need to go get her to shut her account down. And so they, or, or we need to like, you know, cause a hoax or a scandal about her that maybe journalists would report on. We've seen all likes of all of that. So we track that kind of stuff, but with COVID, uh, like I was saying, it's like all hands on deck. Everybody's online, including all the different kinds of scammers and manipulators that you can imagine. So we're paying very particular attention to racialized disinformation because we know that those are the groups that are going to be targeted around elections. And there's going to be a lot of discussion ar around voting, mail-in ballots, uh, you know, candidates. So we don't want to take our eye off the ball, but we do know that there's going to be a lot of election misinformation that's targeted towards niche groups online. The second thing we're paying attention to is financial fraud. Uh, domains that have been registered related to COVID-19 and coronavirus uh, include things like emergency relief or loan or government relief, uh, payroll protection. And these are all domains that are not owned by the government, that are not being serviced by, you know, um, people who are, have your best interest at heart. Um, we're also tracking things like scams related to resale of masks and PPE and credit card scams that are, you know, if, enough, if you're getting, you know, 16 pallets of hand sanitizer at 35 bucks a gallon, it ain't worth it. It's not coming. But uh, we do see a lot of these kinds of uh, scams happening. And then the thing that I'm most passionate about and particularly want to solve at this point is how to get public health professionals in a space where they're communicating their recommendations in a way that is timely, local, relevant, and redundant, and not uh, imposing upon them this idea that they need to become a social media influencer in order to do that. There's many other channels of communication that we need to open up to public health professionals uh, so that we can, we can give people the, you know, the updates that they need uh, and the information that they seek. Jeanette, let me turn to you in, in 
get your sense of how public officials, uh, John was just talking about public health officials speaking at, at this time. Um, you know, I'm sure you're watching all this very closely. How are they doing? What are the trends that you're noticing in the way that their communications are coming out? And I'm also particularly interested in in how different populations may be receiving these in, these messages and what you might be seeing there, um, particularly in terms of vulnerable populations. Are they receiving the right messages um, to help protect themselves in the midst of this pandemic? Can you tell us a little bit about how public officials are doing right now? Well, they, my only source of data is what I see on Twitter. And mm -hmm. so I'm not really having conversations directly with public officials um, with one exception. And when I talk with her, she's, she's just, it's coming at her really fast, constantly. Um, it, the, the work that we've done thus far uh, with our, our funding, it was a rapid fund, a rapid grant was awarded to us from NSF um, to study COVID. And we have been collecting Twitter data from public health officials across the United States, local and state emergency managers and um, local, um, local and state government. And so we looked back from February to the end of um, April so far in trying to start to do some analyses. And we did some, some interesting hashtag analyses for the first two months to see what kinds of things were, not just um, trending hashtags, because that, um, that would show you the things that the public are pushing. And we were interested in the kinds of trending hashtags that these public officials were using because it was characterizing what they were talking about. And we saw some, some real, um, some shifts immediately after uh, March 13th, which was when the national state of emergency was, mm. um, was announced by uh, the White House. And then states started putting into place their shelter in place orders after that. And the, what I found so interesting at that point in time was we saw um, these uh, collective efficacy kinds of campaigns coming out initially, like, um, uh, we're, uh, we're all in this together, stay home, save lives. Um, um, and then uh, we saw individual efficacy messages, and these are hashtag campaigns essentially from, from these different organizations. And so those individual messages were, were things like, um, wash your hands, um, cover your cough. And then at the same time, we started to see these, the emergence of, um, of these collective efficacy campaigns that were really focused more on beyond the individual, but what our individual actions will do to help the broader community. And so we saw the public health and all these accounts really trying to take into consideration the things that risk communicators would say are really important, which is giving individuals actions that they can take to protect themselves right now, social distancing, staying home, washing our hands, but then they also gave a reason for these actions, which was really trying to tap into this broader community collective. We need to protect people who are vulnerable and that kind of thing. Um, pretty quickly after that, we started to see states start to create their own hashtags. Like here in Kentucky, it was Kentucky strong. We are Kentucky and individual states kind of rallying around that. And I watched um, our own governor's briefings here and I, I there were a lot of comparisons between the state of Kentucky and the surrounding states that were much slower to shut things down 
And it was really interesting to observe how the state-based hashtags were really being amplified, hmm. um, almost like um, asking us in the state to kind of rally together as a state body. Because now that we've gotten into this long-term lockdown, we really need that encouragement because it's gotten hard, harder for some, and for others, it's gotten boring, and even others are saying it's, it's time to be done. But your second question was about, are these messages reach, reaching the right people? Mm -hmm. um, I, in, the first, in the first month or so, I was looking at all of the visual images that were coming out of the public health accounts to see what kinds of imagery were they sharing. And I, I, at that time, I was seeing um, a lot of the things that match those hashtags, the campaigns about what do you need to do to protect yourself, the social distancing, staying six, six feet apart. But I also saw that the public health accounts were paying attention to things they normally pay attention to, which is things like women, infant, and children, um, support for breastfeeding, um, support for families who are experiencing domestic violence, which has had a significant increase, um, resources for families that have food um, insufficiencies and they need to know where to go to get um, meals for their kids, um, how to get assistance for um, home learning for, for kids, unemployment assistance and those kinds of things. So those messages, they're out there from these official accounts. Um, whether or not people are seeing them is another question. I don't know how many people that they're trying to reach are actively engaging with these messages because we look at the, the likes and the retweets to see if there's real engagement. And most of these public health accounts, there's, there's really very little. The organizations that get the most attention are your governors. And there, you know, the, the idea of the verified account and having these huge audiences, they drive people to their channels, they drive people to um, their daily briefings, they're almost using social media as kind of a, a way to say, come and listen to our, um, uh, you know, our evening briefings, and that's when they give their, their big talks. Um, and then throughout the day, they're also coordinating around a hashtag that's, um, that's pretty consistent uh, mm. over time. So your, your question about whether or not people are getting these messages, I don't know. And that's one of the limitations of the methods that I use and the data that I use is that I don't know who is actually seeing the messages, but I can tell you the characteristics of the messages that mm -hmm. seem to get the attention um, and how we can help to design other messages so they'll also get attention. But that interplay to me is is fascinating and in, in that, I mean, just to think about President Trump for a second and the degree to which he's demonstrated that um, a public official can use Twitter to actually break news, which then is carried through more mainstream, more traditional media. Uh, and I, I wonder about that, and it sounds like you're in an early obviously an early phase of this, but it'll be quite interesting, I suppose, to know if these governors or public health officials can actually use Twitter as a way to then message to journalists, to then draw attention to audiences who may later watch on television or who may listen on the radio or may read daily newspapers and pick up that information that goes across the digital, across the digital divide. That's, um, I'm sure you're 
pondering that daily. But that's a question I have: is how those two will, how those two will interact. Joan, I want to I want to come to you, um, and I just wanted to. You have this great piece in Nature um, that came out a couple of weeks ago. A natural. Um, let's see. Yeah, social media companies must flatten the curve of misinformation. I'm just going to read a, a little bit of it and, and see if you could take us a little bit more inside this, this article. You say, moderating content after something goes wrong is too late. So we're talking about responsibilities of social media companies here. Moderating content after something goes wrong is too late. Preventing this information requires curating knowledge and prioritizing science, especially during a public crisis. In my experience, tech companies prefer to downplay the influence of their platforms rather than to make sure that influence is understood. Proper curation requires these corporations to engage independent researchers, both to identify potential manipulation and to provide context for authoritative content. So you just took on all the social media companies all at once there, huh? Just uh, quite a- Oh, well, they, they love me. They yeah? love me. Um, what are they doing things, wrong and what are they doing right? Yeah, I mean, it's like this. Uh, nobody loves the government right nobody loves platform companies they're tools it's like nobody loves a hammer right i mean you just it it does a thing and we have to assess the way in which the thing that it does interacts with all of the other things right so um with the platform companies in particular they've built systems that are network rich in resources that preference certain people's voices and ideas over others and we're talking about something that's taken over a decade to develop so if you don't look at social media as a development as an outgrowth of social networking you kind of miss the point which is to say that the first stage of all of this is getting us all on the platforms and to bring our friends there to bring our relationships there and there was a big move in 2011-ish with Facebook where they introduced this uh, product called Pages. And they really wanted to replace the internet. That was the big thing is we can all come on Facebook. Your organization can have a page. You can network with all of the people that want to see your content and stay in touch with your nonprofit or what have you. And then... And then news organizations started using pages and other, you know, entities, even, you know, celebrities and politicians started having pages and everybody was click like, click and like it, you know, subscribe. And what that did was actually built the uh, power into Facebook, which is its real power is in coordinating messaging and coordinating people. Uh, the content is is almost secondary to that. And so on top of that system, what they did was they built uh, advertising. So now instead of reaching all of your people with a single post, you can pay to reach all the people that had liked your page. Mm -hmm. That subtle shift has generated billions of dollars for Facebook and it has allowed them to monetize your networks. And so with Facebook in particular, uh, it became really an open space for manipulators to rush in. Uh, there were no guardrails about impersonating any old organization. So this is where in 2015, 
2014, you start to see the fake news thing. This is before 2016 in the election, but fake news used to just refer to websites that looked like news sites that mm. weren't. Uh, and they were just jam packed with advertising, but their domains would be something like abc.go.com mm -hmm. or, you know, ABC, that might actually be the ABC, ABC one, but it would be like New York times with an L instead of an I, uh, things like that, right? Typo squatting. And it would replicate these pages and it would make outrageous stories. And over time, really the branding of news organizations started to melt away. And now people would say, well, I read it on Facebook. And if it looked like a news organization page, mm. you would just take it for granted that it was. And, and you know, um, and content farms became more popular. So throughout this whole decade of change, we also have politicians coming online and we move away from in-person canvassing and into the world of digital canvassing, which then again opened up another wedge for any group to really rush in like insurgents and take over entire campaigns. Uh, and, you know, really just astroturf the entire online environment to the point where it's really hard to tell the difference between someone who is a true, you know, Biden fan and someone who is pretending to be a Biden fan until such time that they flip the switch and weaponize the account and 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 go at um, go at him. Uh, of course, same thing happens to Trump. Uh, and then we have Russia and foreign governments involved in astroturfing different issues. Um, and so when we start to think about you know, messaging online, we take that long history into account. Mm. And then when it comes to the public health messaging right now, anybody that wants to sell anything, including like, uh, you know, uh, a television set is going to use COVID-19 as a keyword and as a way to juice their SEO, their search engine optimization. So we're going to see a lot of this, um, uh, reformatting of the web. Uh, but the, by and large, though, platform companies have not built the technology that would do exactly what Jeanette is asking, which is provide a way for uh, people who are authorities on public health to reach the masses. And unless they're willing to pay for advertising and develop search engine optimization strategies and figure out how to use domain services in a way that uh, gets them to the top of search results, they're not going to win. And Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and all of them got together and put together a joint statement saying that they're going to work together to surface authoritative content. But I'll tell you, these systems are not built for that. So the, what you get is a bright box at the top of your newsfeed that says, looking for COVID-19 information, click on the CDC website or click on the WHO website. That in turn is being shown at the same time, like if you think about the Twitter feed, it, where you're going to see dangerous health misinformation about, you know, Bill Gates trying to shoot 
vaccines out of drones and you know into public people in public Mm -hmm. right there are all kinds of crazy conspiracy theories but there's no you know when you start scrolling the feed of looking at coronavirus uh you don't you don't know what's what i know i'm starting to rant so i'll just shut up there i appreciate the rant and uh you gave great historical i mean very concise and very rich historical Um, background to this for people who may not understand why it is when they go looking for coronavirus information as you said all of a sudden they're shopping for a television set and they did that's not what they set out to do i think it's really important to have that that perspective people that you're listening to COVID Calls. And my guests today, Jeanette Sutton and Joan Donovan, talking about information, misinformation, and risk communication. And I want to, um, since you've both touched on it, I want to ask it more directly as a question about trust in this moment. And I know that you both think about how different institutions gain and try to maintain trust or how people try to misuse trust or or derail trust so let me let me take your temperature where you things are where you think things are right now and and but let me offer one observation i have been pretty down on um the capacity of scientists to communicate authoritatively coming into this pandemic and yet i've also watched two things actually uh Greta uh, Thunberg is not a scientist yet, but she's an effective activist, an effective science communicator. And she, last year, cut through a lot of noise and got a message, very clear message of activism through. And Dr. Fauci has has cut through a lot of the noise through this as well and gotten clear messages through. So just when I was sort of reaching a moment of despair for science communication, I, I have seen examples that give me some hope, but maybe I'm just feeling too optimistic in this moment. So I'd like to engage you both in the sort of broader question of how how trust can be maintained, if it's lost, how it can be regained in a moment like this. Jeanette, can you take that first and then John to you? Sure. Um, I do think about this a lot. Um, And I think that it depends on what level of organization you're talking about and which audience you're talking about. at the very top, there are obviously very mixed perceptions of the trustworthiness of the person standing behind the podium at the White House. Um, and because of the um, the information that is being shared by him on a daily basis, it gets um, you know carried away through all of the uh, social media sites. It gets picked up by the mainstream news. Um, the information ecology, it shares it, it gets shifted and changed and amplified. And, and um, so, it, it, but um, the federal response to COVID, um, I think, I personally don't have a great deal of trust, um, with some exceptions. Um, you know, if I look at states, there are some states, the governors that have done exceptionally good job. Um, 
other governors who have not been perceived to do as good a job. But again, it kind of depends on which audience you're looking at. Some audiences think that the governors in Iowa and Nebraska and North Dakota and South Dakota are doing a great job because they haven't shut things down. Whereas others are saying, you know, those are the people I would never want leading me. Um, and then at the local level, um, you know, all politics is local, all disaster is local, you know, looking here at my own local level, um, I could say that it's been fairly positive and I have trust. Um, I'm, I'm sitting in a very red state, but I have blue government right now in terms of our governor. Um, and so it's really, it's quite mixed. Whether or, whether or not it's possible for the federal government to regain trust across the whole population, I would say that is highly unlikely given what's happened over the last four years and the amount of gaslighting that is going on continuously of trying to rewrite history and um, very obviously telling us things that are blue are actually red instead of actually saying they're blue. Um, because there's just so much misinformation out there and it just seems so incredibly purposeful. And so I think that trust in many ways is, has been lost. But you asked also about science communicators and whether or not there's some shining lights out there. And I do think that there are. I think that um, if you search for them, you can find them. And they have developed a strong audience. Um, I'm thinking in particular of um, people who used to be part of Obama's administration who are now carrying out some really significant efforts around planning and reopening. Um, uh, there's uh, scholars out of the University of Washington who have done some really great work in helping people to understand the biology and um, uh, thinking about the healthcare system and the sharing of information. And, but if you're not following the right people, those people are not going to show up in your social media. Right. And so that's part of the problem is that um, if, you, if, if you don't know where to look, it would be really hard to find those people. If you're not already following the people who are retweeting them, you, they may never show up in your feed. And if you're looking for something that agrees with you and you agree with it, which is what we tend to do unless we want to be more open-minded, we're not going to find those things. And so while there are science communicators that the three of us may really enjoy listening to and reading and we, we really want to follow them, um, there's a lot of people who will never see them. And that's, again, it goes back to the search engine optimization, these algorithms that are promoting some people over others. And I've been um, encouraged by the science communicators that get um, amplified by mainstream media on their broadcast stations, because then I know that they're getting a broader audience beyond mm -hmm. just their Twitter feed, which is really quite narrow to find. I should also add that um, mm -hmm. there's a great YouTube channel, uh, ASAP Science, that I often uh, hell, I, I don't know if often is the right word, but sometimes I contribute to some of the background research for these, um, you know, two young guys that have a deep interest in science and explaining it and they break it down for people and in pretty short videos and they have something like 9 million 
subscribers, right? And so this is your your sort of 21st century version of, um, you know, a, a quippy kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, it's, it's not like very high tech. It's not, it, you know, you don't need to know a lot, uh, but it's be- definitely popular education about science. And, and they think deeply, uh, Greg and Mitch think a lot about how to communicate science, especially in this moment, given that something like 5G, for instance, a technology that's rolling out across, well, across uh, some of the, some countries, you know, and not others for obvious um, resource reasons, but um, 5G is being blamed as somehow some kind of conduit that has either exacerbated the problem of coronavirus or invented it uh, or is part of the the transmission of it. We've seen um, violence being perpetrated against uh, telephone line workers. People have set these 5G towers on fire. Um, And then there's conflicting evidence out there where you have scientists saying, you know, 5G is a different a little bit different kind of technology. We should be mindful about any potential health effects. Doesn't mean there are, but you know, scientists often try to hold out a space of possibility for mm-hmm. the unknown, right? And that's what's great about science is it really tries to figure out what we don't know. Uh, but we also live in a in a, in a real world situation where we we have a information seeking uh, behaviors that require instantaneous uh, information, but that's not necessarily knowledge. And I often caution people to think about when you Google something, what comes back on that first page of Google returns is often information that has failed to be monetized in other ways. So you are literally getting garbage right? It's all things that there haven't been, uh, they haven't been able to sell the content somewhere. They haven't been able to make money on the content in other places. I'm not talking about everything, but I'm saying you have to go into Google with the mindset that, uh, you know, high value, very costly scientific studies are behind paywalls in very costly scientific journals. I wish we could solve that with open access. I think that uh, we we should, uh, as scholars, push for open access for every single one of our publications. And I've tried as best I can to select journals that um, that will allow public audiences to read my work. Uh, that being said, you sacrifice the prestige if you don't go for the top tier journal behind the paywall. Uh, you know, so the trade-off is, you know, tenure committee or whoever else is like, well, you know, she's publishing in some of these, you know, journals that don't necessarily get the the glitz and the glam. Uh, but for me, it's important that my scholarship be public. And I think for scientists in this moment, the kind of ways in which we talk to each other at conferences where we always have this this moment of, well, this is what we think it is now, right? This is the best knowledge now. Uh, doesn't work with public communication. It doesn't help uh, that we went through this big mass controversy uh, because now I see conspiracists rushing into the void to say, 
oh, you, they, they were hoarding the masks for themselves or the masks are really just a diversion so that you think there's something happening, but I'm not going to wear a mask because there's no, there's no such thing as coronavirus. It's really just the flu. So you see all the ways in which miscommunication or even recommendation changes become political opportunities to these conspiracists. Um, who then quickly uh, churn out content. And that's the other thing about knowledge is that it takes a long time for us mm -hmm. to publish and get our work out there. It's not easy. We are not shaped to fit this world of instantaneous information. And so I'm often, you know, being asked to refute stuff related to uh, X, Y, and Z health emergency right now and I can never know you know I put my bets down on hydroxychloroquine maybe not being the thing we think it is because when I looked at the science I didn't have enough evidence to say mm -hmm. it would work right and the politicization of hydroxychloroquine then right. became a political opportunity mm -hmm. for people to say well, if you're not on board with this treatment, you must want everyone to die. And that's not true either. But scientists get stuck in these um, debates that, I, you know, often are not worth their time and get in the way of them communicating the most effective uh, and important information uh, quickly and, and, and to relevant audiences. I want to remind people you're listening to COVID Calls with Jeanette Sutton and with Joan Donovan, and we have uh, about five minutes left, and it's still time to get a question in if you want to using YouTube live chat, or you can tweet the question at me, at US of Disaster. I do have a question here from Patrick Roberts, and Jeanette, let me um, give this question to you first. Uh, Patrick's asking, are there examples from other countries of better public health messaging using or avoiding social media? Boy, um, hi Patrick. <laughs> um, I've met you before at conferences, and um, it's nice to hear a question from you. I, I'm not really familiar with um, public messaging outside of the United States um, because we've so uh, focused on um, these accounts that are U.S. based, um, with the exception of getting some World Health Organization messaging. And so I, I can't answer your question. I'm really sorry, but maybe Joan has some knowledge of it. I don't know. You cut out just a tiny bit when you were asking the question. Can you just ask me again? Yeah, his question is, what are you seeing in other countries where you're getting um, good examples of public health messaging using or avoiding social media? So I guess the gist of it is, um, is it, are there other, in other countries, are we seeing better examples of reaching publics using digital communication, social media? Um, I can only speak to what we're seeing related to uh, what we've looked at related to authoritarian overreach and political, um, political, what we call white propaganda. I have an article out in Slate with Gabby Lim where Republicans were requesting that the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, be removed from Twitter because they are agents of disinformation. Mm -hmm. And our argument is essentially like, you also have, you know, in the US midst, politicians who are participating in white propaganda. And white propaganda is a little bit different than disinformation, which is to say that 
white propaganda is when we know the source of the propaganda. And so politicians who are not hiding who they are, uh, but are per per perhaps speculating rather dangerously on a subject uh, and are producing propaganda aren't necessarily doing what platforms companies de define as disinformation, which is when you're trying to conceal something while giving the information, conceal your identity, conceal your motives. And so there was this back and forth on Twitter between US politicians and the CCP, basically both alleging each country is, uh, is responsible for coronavirus and is hiding patient zero. And the, the ridiculous part of disinformation or misinformation is that when it's there's always no proof for things that are untrue mm -hmm. so until we have you know and it's going to take time for investigative journalists really to to root this out and figure out where the origin point was and who patient zero was we are going to have speculation uh but that's not necessarily something that platform companies will take action on they will take action on things that are quote unquote immediately harmful like I write a post that says, you know, you do not need to use a mask and, uh, you know, you could potentially, you know, drink disinfectant to get rid of this, which is obviously ludicrous, but nevertheless, uh, it happens every day. So I want to be aware of, we have a couple of minutes left. I know Joan needs to go for another interview at six. So I'm going to give you just, I'm just asking for your 30 second take. Um, on this, how are, are how is your center going to watchdog the election? Like, what's priority one in terms of keeping misinformation under check as we head to the election? I know for you, you think yeah. ask you to answer this so briefly, but what's the top? No, what's the headline? I hear you. the The headline is the election, as far as we can tell, will happen, and the real challenge is going to be figuring out if we can get mail-in ballots in certain states to ease up on some of their uh, restrictions and, and permissioning. We have some states that require two notaries to validate your uh, mail-in ballot to say that you were the one that, that, um, that mailed it in. The other thing that's going to be complicating about social distancing is we do have quite a bit of elderly voters that rely on uh, transportation to the polls. And if they can't get on a bus together or in a cars together, their, their ability to vote is going to be changed. The other thing is if we have a massive closure of polling centers and the distance between centers becomes really hard, uh, really far and wide and and it becomes, you know, you need to vote over the course of, you know, maybe it takes you two and a half hours. We need to figure out a way to have, you know, possibly the, the uh, early voting expanded so that people can get out and do voting quickly uh, and safely. So there's, but with every one of those changes to process, a new political opportunity opens up for manipulators to say, it's been rigged, uh, don't believe the vote, no one counted you, or they throw in other things that are like, you can vote by text, or you here's a, you know, I'm most afraid, to be honest with you, of seeing fake mail-in ballots. 
like where, where a company mails out a bunch of ballots, says this is the official ballot, you think you voted, and it's just going to some P.O. box somewhere uh, where someone has, uh, you know, uh, denied many people the right to vote by virtue of taking advantage of a situation. And the reason why my brain goes there is because I get like, this is where my mind goes, which is why I'm good at my job, which is I'm like, okay, what's the worst thing I could think of that could run undercover and maybe no one would ever find out. You know, in, in 2016, there was a lot of text messaging campaigns and, mm -hmm. and things that we saw that were really mischievous and we never really figured out who was at the bottom of them. And this time it's going to take an enormous lift by journalists, civil society organizations, especially voter protection organizations, mm -hmm. uh, politicians themselves, community leaders, uh, technologists. We are going to need all hands on deck to ensure the vote is true and correct. Joan Donovan, thank you for joining us. And I know you study high-tech misinformation. You've just given me a low-tech nightmare to think about with this sort of mail-in ballot I, That's problem. what I'm saying. But I it's know, like that's, that's why I wanted cost, you to talk to us today. Low, high reward, right? That's, that's the thing we're dealing with every time. Facebook, low cost, high reward, you know? Mm. So it's, it's a wacky world. Well, stay healthy, Joan. It's nice to speak with you. Jeanette, I'm going to uh, bring the last question to you. And we talked about this back at the beginning. I mean, you've been such a um, pioneer, really, in terms of disaster research methods. I want to see if you would reflect a little bit about this, this moment in time in which we're all distanced. We're all doing all these things that, that seem... Um, counterintuitive you know we're we're connecting constantly but we're always at a distance we're watching a pandemic play out slowly but we're all reaching for rapid response funds are we at some sort of inflection point on how disaster research more generally or more specifically the kind of work you do um is going to be done do you think it's hmm. a really interesting question um i think that disaster researchers are going to have to become more creative in how they conduct their research. I mean, normally you have these groups of, of scholars that are going into the field and they're doing ethnographic research and face-to-face -face interviews and observations and they're collecting documents and they're really engaged in that capacity. And um, maybe someday they'll be able to go and do that when it's safe to do so. Um, I know a lot of people who do face-to-face -face experiments have had to put them on hold. I have a project in a lab that I've had to put on hold as well. And so there's some, there's significant challenges there, but um, you know, over the last 10 years, I've also served on a lot of different um, grant review panels and I increasingly see more and more groups trying to find ways to access social media data as a source of information that can be utilized for other kinds of questions and mm. there's a lot of data available. <laughs> some of it's good and some of it's bad and one of the challenges of working with this particular kind of data is that it's very unwieldy. The sources that um, allow you easy access 
may not be giving you what you think that you're getting. And so you have to be very good at identifying what the boundaries are around what you've asked for um, and what you're retrieving. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think it might've been last week that Twitter made the announcement they're gonna make this huge data set of COVID-19 data available mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. researchers. I have no idea what that means. I don't know <laughs> if that means COVID-19 and coronavirus and NCOV and yeah. SARS and flu, or if it's gonna be just a small segment or if it's gonna be the whole thing, is it gonna have all the network connections? Is it gonna have all the metadata? I have, I really don't know what it means, but it's, I think for some scholars, it seems like, oh, there's this data that you can play in and it seems like this great little pile to jump into and then you can spin up some AI and natural language processing and whatever it spits out, it's, you know, you're gonna publish on it. But it takes so much more sensitivity to understand the context and exactly what you're getting and um, really being a, a, a scholar who starts from theory to drive your questions and being aware of the foundational research that's been done over the last, I don't know, 15 years now in the social media space. And it's really branched into all kinds of areas. It's, um, it's so vast. We didn't have misinformation research until the last six years or so. And now there's this whole field of people, scholars who are doing amazing work in this, and as Joan is one of them and others across the United States who are doing that. Um, so your question was, are we at an inflection point? Um, I think scholars are still gonna go back into the field. That is, that is one of the primary ways that especially social scientists do our research is going and having that face-to-face -face conversation ethnographic. Um, but we have a lot of documents that are available to us online right now. And if we're good at identifying the available data and working with it in appropriate ways, I think there, there are a lot of questions that we can answer while we're stuck at home. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely positive we're gonna have a huge influx of, of papers about social media in the next yep. couple of months. I have no doubt at all that I'm gonna have a lot of re requests to review papers and proposals. Well, I'm glad that we have you there already to kind of know what the pitfalls may be with that. And thank you for the work you do, Jeanette, and Joan too. Thank you for the work that you do and for taking this hour to talk with us about it on COVID Calls. I wanna remind people COVID Calls is on every day, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And on Monday, I'll be talking um, with public health officials and local historians and economic development, um, economic development uh, official Silas Chamberlain in York, Pennsylvania. And I'll be sending you a link out um, on Twitter and uh, by email if you want it on how to reach that conversation on Monday. You can always listen to COVID calls after the fact uh, using uh, soundcloud.com. Just find the COVID calls podcast. Have a good weekend and stay healthy. Jeanette and Joan, thank you once again. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll talk to you on Thank Monday. You.